Hey everyone, welcome back once again to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Okay, for real this time, this is part 11. Uh, I had number 9 uh, labeled number 11. Number 9 is Perils at Sea. This is this one. So enjoy. Uh, William H. Godby, uh, Natural Disasters and Other Horrors. Hey, help support the show. And I'll double check and triple check to make sure everything's right. Uh... We've got cool shirts. Check out the uh, Ralier Charles shirt uh, that's in the shop. Uh, tell your ma, tell your pa, or I'll ship you down to Sothogwa. I keep making that joke, and now there's finally a shirt. Dave has a shirt? You want to show that you're a Dave head? You know, Dave's got the I'm well, and also Dave's corner shirt now. So, yeah. Hey, and also, just... Keep an ear out for those Haster casters I'm working on. I've got one already sold. And, uh, yeah, I've got the parts. I'm working on it right now. Sanding everything. Going to stain them all nice and yellow. Put some cool king and yellow decals that I made on it. And uh, Haster caster. All right. People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos starts now. Unless there's some ads that they stuck in here. And then you'll hear those right here, right now. Like Jesus Jones. Great Disasters and Horrors in the World's History by Alan H. Godby Chapter 11 Great Samoan Hurricane Roll on, thou deep and dark blue ocean, roll! Ten thousand fleets sweep over thee in vain. Man marks the earth with ruin, his control stops with thy shores upon the watery plain. The wrecks are all thy deed nor doth remain a shadow of man's ravage save his own when for a moment like a drop of rain he sinks into thy depths with bubbling groan without a grave unknelled uncoffined and unknown during the fall of eighteen eighty eight no little interest centred in one of the little inland groups of the pacific in 1887, German officers in the Samoan group conceived that the king, Maliatoa, was so prejudiced toward their interest that he should be deposed. So without much ceremony, they laid hands upon and carried him into exile, placing him on an island some thousands of miles distant. There seems no reason to doubt that Germany's ultimate design was to formally occupy the islands. It is the old story of the civilized man's dealings with the savage, of the man who has ten talents obtaining the property of the man with one. Methods have changed somewhat, however, since the day when our pilgrim fathers kindly relieved the red man of such encumbrances as he had in the way of real estate, and established quit-claim deeds and perfect titles in their flintlock muskets. It is not now considered good form, as it was in the days of old and Spanish America, to declare oneself Marquis of this or Duke de that, with several thousands of Indians as slaves or tributaries, without consulting them. The modern method is that of the European guy, who attaches himself to your person willy-nilly, in order that he rifle your pockets, as the need of his diverse imaginary services. It is a less expensive method, and none the less sure. So the colonizers of our day kindly establish a protectorate over Naboth's vineyard. Naboth, however, fully understands the process, as some civilized races have found to their cost. 
the samoans were in high dudgeon at the action of germany and when the foreigners coolly proceeded without consulting the wishes of the natives to select and establish a new king whom they thought would be favourable to their own interests open hostility resulted the samoans had no way to bring back their former king Malietoa, but they promptly deposed the creature of the germans tamasisi and chose instead Matafa, a relative and personal representative of their exiled king the few american residents and frequenters of the islands approved this deeming the act of the germans one of unjustifiable aggression civil war resulted at the outset tamasisi's strong personal following and the fear of german interference gave him a very large party but in the half-dozen fierce battles that were fought he was decidedly worsted and forced to flee from the capital apia he shut up in a native fortress eight miles distant the germans had in the meantime actively espoused his cause and went so far as to bombard several native villages still they did not come into direct personal collision with the natives until december eighteen eighty eight a body of germans landed a few miles from apia and assaulted Matafa's forces the island blood was up the battle was stubbornly contested the germans were utterly routed and driven back to their vessels with a loss of fifty killed and wounded this is precisely the sort of pretext a protecting power desires in great indignation at the pesky people who have failed to allow themselves to be thrashed the germans formally declared war and began a series of high-handed seizures and aggressions the interests of other nations in samoa were endangered there was but one american man-of-war in the harbour as soon as the war department learned of the state of affairs reinforcements were sent out and it seemed highly probable that a collision between america and germany might be precipitated at any moment thus there were collected in the harbour the american warship trenton the flagship of rear admiral kimberley and one of the largest vessels in the navy n h farquhar commander the nipsic commander d w mullen and the vandalia commander c m schoonmaker the germans were represented by the warship olga and the cruisers ebba and adler england had sent the man-of-war calliope in addition there were in the harbour ten or twelve schooners and trading vessels such was the force assembled at apia march fifteenth eighteen eighty nine the news does not travel rapidly from that portion of the world during the spring a report reached america that the looked-for collision between the assembled forces had occurred and that the nipsic had been sunk by the olga there was much suppressed excitement but as the report was not officially confirmed this soon ceased no one was prepared for the actual occurrence or the magnitude of the calamity the town of apia the samoan capital lies around a small circular bay across the mouth of the harbour two miles in width extends a coral reef which is visible at low water a break in the reef a quarter of a mile in width forms the entrance to the harbour only a small portion of the latter is available for anchorage as the eastern part is quite shallow and on the west the bay has a small fringing reef well out from the shore 
it will be seen that the crowded condition of the harbour rendered it particularly perilous the war vessels were anchored in the deep water the ebba and nipsic being nearest the shore the schooners and lighter craft were in the shoal water next to the fringing reef on the west side of the harbour the town is composed of cottages built after the native pattern low of elastic materials and bound well together so that the low houses swaying easily with the wind are not so easily blown away as structures of stiffer and more pretentious build the american consulate facing the harbour lies about the centre of the town with a long strip of sandy beach before it for some weeks the weather had been gloomy and capricious the time of the vernal equinox was at hand and a low area storm of unusual violence might be expected at any time during the afternoon of march the fifteenth the wind began to increase the warships lowered their topmasts and secured their spars one or two prepared storm sails for emergencies the anchors were all out the steam was raised lest the anchors should not hold the wind increased steadily blowing from the same quarter continuously though the only recorded observations are at this one point its proximity to the equator the steadiness of the wind and the length of time it blew indicate a cyclonic tempest of unusual violence by 11 p.m. the wind was a strong gale not too strong in the harbour for small boats however for the crews of nearly all the schooners divining what was coming put out their spare anchors and went ashore leaving the vessels to their fate mayhap the anchors would hold but on their lives they would take no risks an hour later immense rollers were coming in from the ocean finding the coral reef only a partial check ordinarily a reef ensures a harbour from the force of the waves and leaves only the direct fury of the winds to be encountered but the reef at apia is a lower barrier than such harbours usually possess and may not be seen at high tide at midnight rain was falling the wind still increased the vessels were pitching fearfully at this time the ebba nearest the shore began dragging her anchors and was compelled to aid them with her engines at one o'clock the vandalia also was compelled to use her engines should the wind increase their case was truly desperate the rain poured in torrents fiercer grew the gale by three o'clock every vessel in the harbour was dragging her anchors there might be a collision or a wreck at any time every able-bodied man was required that any emergency might be met neither officer nor private could think of sleep those on shore realized the peril of the situation accustomed to heavy gales the natives slept soundly for a time in their low huts at length the crash of falling trees and the tearing away of roofs began to be heard in the storm little knots of people crept about in the darkness seeking shelter from the tempest sand and pebbles gathered up from the beach were hurled by the wind with cutting force the tide was rising and the gale brought it into the streets a hundred feet above the usual high water mark the spray from the dashing surf sprang high in the air and beat into the windows of houses nearest the shore it was a memorable night 
Long before dawn, the natives were huddled in little groups about the shore, gazing at the shifting lights of the tossing vessels. Their houses were being wrecked, their crops and trees destroyed, but they themselves were measurably safe. But those in the harbour... There was little need of conversation, and indeed, did one wish to speak to his neighbour, he was compelled to shout in his ear. As each peered into his fellow's face in the uncertain light, he saw the shadow of a terrible fear and a desperate resolve that spoke plainer than any words. Explanations were useless. That tacit understanding was enough. For the time, thrones, principalities, feuds and hostilities were forgotten. The followers of Tamasisi and Matafa were shoulder to shoulder. No longer was there thought of the foeman who had exiled their chief and bombarded their villages. Out in that seething cauldron were scores of human beings battling for life with wind and wave. That was enough. As the day drew near, the white men on the shore began to join the little groups of natives. Through the gloom could be seen the lights of the plunging ships, and ever and anon there came on the gale the sound of shouted orders like a distant echo. The wavering of the lights showed that, despite steam and anchor, the vessels were slowly dragging about, crossing and recrossing each other's paths. The breathless watchers on the beach listened for the crash of collision that would be the death knell of scores of gallant marines. Some shielded their faces with bits of tile, and endeavoured to distinguish the position of the respective ships. Less hopeful than the whites, the natives saw no chance of escape. Which vessel would strike first? Would anyone be saved? Between five and six o'clock it began to grow light. The position of the vessels was completely altered. Forced from their moorings, they were drifting toward the inner reef. Each contended stubbornly with the storm. Volumes of black smoke poured from the furnaces of the quivering hulls. A number of the sailing vessels were already on the reef. Fragments of wreckage began to be tossed ashore. The Trenton and Vandalia, being farthest out in the harbour, were scarcely visible through the mist and spray. The large iron hulls were tossed about like corks. Wave after wave dashed over their decks. The men swarmed about the masts and the lower rigging, clinging to anything they could grasp. The Ebber, Adler and Nipsic were within a few yards of each other and close on the fatal reef. Each vessel seemed as though endowed with a life of its own. They struggled like wild creatures, as the stag might struggle in the clutch of a panther. The Ebber slowly retreated toward the reef, contesting every inch. Suddenly she paused, recovered, and dashed forward into the teeth of the furious storm. It was her last desperate sally. The current bore her to the right. In a moment she collided with the Nipsic, her bow carrying away a boat and several feet of the post-quarter rail. Falling back, she fouled with the Olga, and her rudder was carried away. This left her helpless. Swinging broadside to the wind, she lay a few moments, rolling heavily in the trough of the sea. Over her deck the surf foamed and roared. At length a gigantic wave lifted her up and hurled her with awful force upon the reef. Striking fairly on her keel, she heeled over toward the sea. No further trace of her was seen. 
every timber must have been shattered. Doubtless more of her crew were crushed than were drowned. The horror-stricken natives, accustomed to the sea from infancy, dashed into the surf, struggling with death for the lives of their late oppressors. They were but savages, they knew no better. For a few moments not a hand was raised from the site of the wreck. At length a few faintly struggling forms appeared in the surf. They were grasped by eager hands and safely reached the shore. Another was seen clinging to the piling of a small wharf, beaten half senseless by the furious waves. He was drawn ashore. It was a handsome, boyish-faced lieutenant, the sole surviving officer. Out of a total force of seventy-six men and officers on the Ebber, five only were saved. The young lieutenant was the officer of the watch at the time of the wreck. The others were all below and must have been crushed to death. This occurred about six o'clock in the morning. Finding no other survivors, those on shore turned to the remaining vessels once more. Their position had changed again. The situation rapidly grew more perilous. The Adler had fouled with the Olga and was close on the reef, some two hundred yards from where the Ebber struck and, like it, was approaching the shore broadside on. The suspense was prolonged and painful. For nearly half an hour she lay thus swept by the waves. Finally, a huge roller tossed her on top of the reef and turned her over on her side, throwing those on deck into the water. They struggled to regain the vessel. Those who succeeded clung to guns, tackling, spars, and masts, but twenty were drowned. The vessel lay with her keel to the sea and nearly her entire hull out of water, so those who clung to the rigging were fairly protected. During the day the natives succeeded in getting a line to the wreck, and a number of the sailors escaped, but the line parted while some were still on the vessel and could not be replaced. The remainder of the crew clung to the wreck through all that terrible day and night, and were finally gotten off when at the verge of exhaustion. While the Adler was drifting toward the reef, the Nipsic was battling with fearful odds, facing the wind. She was nevertheless dragging her three anchors and receding toward the reef. But her chief danger lay in another source. The gigantic Olga, which had crippled the two vessels already wrecked, threatened to crush her also. While the Nipsic endeavoured by skilful use of steam and rudder to avoid the Olga, a little schooner, the Lily, fell in her way and was cut down in an instant. There were but three men on board. Two of them succeeded in reaching the Olga. Just then it occurred to the commander of the Nipsic to reinforce the anchors by attaching a hawser to one of the heavy eight-inch rifles and casting it overboard. Ere this was accomplished, the Olga struck her a terrible blow, directly amidships. Her smokestack was overturned and fell on the deck with a terrible crash. One of her boats was carried away and the rail splintered. No one at first knew the extent of the damage. The frightened crew clambered into the rigging, thinking the ship was sinking. The lumbering smokestack dashed from side to side with the roll of the ship. It was a frightful moment. Only a few yards away, the Ebber had disappeared. The Nipsic had swung around and was rapidly nearing the spot. Only promptness and most skilful management saved her officers and crew from the fate of the Ebber. 
Captain Mullane was on the bridge at the time and took in the situation in an instant. With the smokestack gone, it would be impossible to keep up steam. Without steam, the reef could not be avoided. At once, the smokestack was chocked to prevent its rolling about the deck, and orders were given to beach the ship while a small head of steam was still available. Two hundred yards away lay the sandy beach before the American consulate. A great throng awaited anxiously the result of this manoeuvre. The vessel's course was parallel to the terrible reef, and but a few feet from it. Her crew were gathered about the bow, and those on shore recognised many a familiar face or personal friend in the driving spray, on whom they might be looking for the last time. One or two of the crew had been on shore during the night, and now stood watching the fate of their comrades. Barely escaping the reef, the steamer plunged into the sand a few yards from the shore and swung around diagonally to the storm. The breakers dashed furiously upon her stern, and it seemed as though she would be beaten to pieces in an instant. Those who escaped must do so at once. Five sailors dashed into a boat, but the falls did not work properly, and one end of the boat dropped. The men fell into the sea and were drowned. The surgeon and five six men were placed in another boat, no sooner launched than capsized. But the natives had formed a chain by grasping each other's hands, and dashing into surf where a white man would have perished at once, they seized the men and passed them to the shore. Several of those on the Nipsic took advantage of this opportunity and sprang overboard, but two of these were lost. Meanwhile, all those remaining on board had crowded into the foresail. The natives in the surf, under the direction of two of their chiefs, Sumani Tuffer and Saluane, had succeeded in getting lines to the vessel, and double hawsers were quickly stretched to the shore. Scores of eager hands were outstretched to assist in the work. The waves broke high on the beach, and the undertow was so strong that even the natives narrowly escaped being carried out into the bay. The white men on the shore scarcely dared venture into the surf. The rain poured more heavily, the clouds of flying sand grew thicker and more cutting, the hoarse shouts of the officers mingled with the roar of the storm, and the stricken vessel quivered in every fibre. Fragments of wreckage were ever and anon hurled amongst those in the surf, the gloom of the awful tempest combined with all these things to produce a tableau of chaos itself. Yet, throughout the whole fearful scene, the natives never faltered, but sang and shouted words of encouragement to each other as they stood at their chosen posts. The white men on shore rendered all the aid in their power, but the posts of danger and need were filled by the natives. An eyewitness of the scene says, quote, to one who saw the noble work of those men during the storm, it is a cause of wonder that they should be called savages by more enlightened races. There seemed to be no instinct of the savage in a man who could rush into that boiling torrent of water that broke upon the reef and place his own life in peril to save the helpless drowning men of a foreign country. While the Americans and Germans were treated alike, it was plain that their sympathies were with the Americans, and they redoubled their efforts when they saw an opportunity to aid the men who represented a country which had insisted that their native government should not be interfered with by a foreign power. 
End quote. The coolness of Captain Mullane had mastered the frightened crew. There was no longer confusion. The officers stood by the rail and directed the movements of the men. Time after time the rolling billows dashed the men from the hawser, but the gallant natives succeeded in saving all. By eight o'clock the Nipsic was deserted. The three smallest of the warships were wrecked. The four large men of war were well out in the harbour, and for the time measurably safe. But near ten o'clock the situation became alarming again. Masses of floating wreckage struck the Trenton, as it was lifted by a heavy wave, and carried away the rudder and propeller. Her anchors, unaided, would not keep her from the reef, or from fouling with the other vessels in the harbour. The Vandalia and the Calliope were drifting toward the wreck of the Adler. As the Vandalia endeavoured to steam away, the iron prow of the Englishman arose high in the air and fell with full force upon the Vandalia's port quarter. The Calliope lost her jib-boom, and the heavy timbers of the Vandalia were shivered. Every man near the point of the collision was thrown from his feet by the shock. Water was rushing through a great rent in the cabin. It seemed that the Vandalia had received her death-blow. The frightened men swarmed from the hatches, but presently returned to their posts. At this crisis the Englishman essayed a bold manoeuvre. Seeing that to remain where he was would be, in a few more moments, ruin to the Vandalia, he resolved to take all risks himself, and letting go all anchors, swung around to the wind and endeavoured to put to sea. For a moment the vessel seemed stationary. Then the tremendous power of the propeller began to tell, and the vessel moved slowly forward in the teeth of the storm. Volumes of smoke poured from her funnels, and the ship groaned in every timber. Gradually it became clear that she could escape from the harbour. This is one of the most daring feats in the naval annals. It was the one desperate chance to save the Calliope and her crew from certain death. An accident to the machinery at this moment, or a slight change in the direction of the wind as she neared the narrow gateway of the harbour, would have been fatal. Down in the fire-room, the men worked as they never had before. The Trenton lay close to the reef, and the Calliope was compelled to pass between the two. The flagship's fires were out, and she could do nothing to save herself. Every man felt that a few moments longer would find him a grave in the coral reef. Those on shore were watching with intensest anxiety. Just then a strange sound came, borne on the wind. A wild, ringing cry from the four hundred and fifty on board the Trenton. The Americans were cheering the Calliope. Expecting death for themselves, they rejoiced that their friends might yet escape and the heart of every Englishman went out to the brave Americans who gave their parting tribute to the Queen's ship. There is something peculiarly touching in this incident. It is far above the morituri te salutamus of the gladiator in the arena. It was an expression of immortal courage, the dying saluting the victor, the doomed saluting the save, manhood distressed greeting manhood triumphant. The English seamen returned the cry. The Calliope safely reached the sea. Her commander afterwards said, Those ringing cheers of the American flagship pierced deep into my heart, and I will ever remember that mighty outburst of fellow-feeling. 
which I felt came from the bottom of the hearts of the gallant admiral and his crew. Every man on board the Calliope felt as I did. It made us work to win. I can only say, God bless America and her noble sailors. Meanwhile, the Vandalia, seeing her doom certain, endeavoured to reach the beach, but being a much larger vessel than the Nipsic, she could not come so near the shore. A blow from a terrific wave in the night had hurled the captain across the cabin and so injured him that he was unable to control the vessel. His executive officer, Carlin, was in command, but the captain stood by his side to the last. Carlin's coolness and nerve were wonderful. He had been on duty thirty consecutive hours and had not tasted food all that time. In order to reach the beach, the Vandalia was compelled to execute the same perilous feat that had been performed three hours before by the Nipsic. Slipping her anchors, she crowded on all steam and skirted the edge of the reef, finally dashing into the soft sand two hundred yards from the shore and eighty yards from the stern of the Nipsic. The engines were stopped and the fires put out. All hands were ordered on deck, and the vessel swung around, broadside to the waves. At first, her position being supposed safe, it was thought the two hundred and forty men on board might well remain until the storm was over. The men were scattered about the deck and foresail, clinging to the guns, the masts, rigging, and sides of the ship. Within half an hour, her real danger became apparent. She wallowed lower and lower in the yielding sand. More and more frequently, the seas dashed over her, flooding the hatchways with water. Her boats were dashed from the davits and torn to pieces. It was attempted to fire lines to the shore, but all her powder was ruined. The spray and mist arose in such masses from the side of the ship that those on shore could hardly distinguish her position. At this moment a brave sailor volunteered to swim through the surf with a line, in the hope that his comrades might be rescued. It was a perilous task, as the water was filled with floating wreckage. Fastening a cord to his body, he sprang overboard. An immense wave hurled him against the side of the vessel and struck him senseless. He was drowned almost within touch of his comrades. Gradually the men were driven from the gun-deck. By noon it was under water. The heavy billows that swept over the ship lifted the men from their feet and hurled them against the sides. The salt water intensified the pain of their bruises. Soon all of the men sought refuge in the rigging, and a few officers only remained on the poop deck. The waves grew more violent. For once the bold men on shore were powerless. No boat could live in the surf and there was no firing apparatus on shore that a line might be conveyed to the vessel. The scores on the land were desperate, but the Vandalia's doom was sealed. Finally, they resolved on bolder efforts than had hitherto been made. Three natives fastened a cord to their bodies, and passing around the side of the bay, a quarter of a mile above the wrecked warship, endeavoured to take advantage of the powerful current setting toward the shore, and so reached the vessel. Powerful swimmers as they were, they were hurled to the beach without being able to get within one hundred yards of the vessel. Urged by their chief to try again, effort after effort was made, but without success. Seeing no other chance, 
those on the Vandalia, one by one, dropped into the sea, in the faint hope that they might yet reach the land in safety. Some succeeded in reaching the wreck of the Nipsic, only a short distance away, but many were too weak to draw themselves up to its deck. As they clung to the ropes, the violence of the waves, in some cases, tore the clothing from their bodies. The captain, sick and feeble, was growing weaker every moment. The brave Carlin stood by him, endeavouring to hold him on, and speaking words of encouragement. He had not sufficient strength left to clamber into the rigging and refused a life-preserver, insisting that it should be given to some of the others. At length an immense roller plunged toward the vessel, and the captain bent forward to receive the shock. A heavy machine-gun was torn from its fastening and hurled full upon the captain. His body passed overboard and was never more seen. One by one, others of the officers were beaten from the deck. The suffering was not only with those on the vessel. The brave fellows who laboured on the shore and in the surf were cut and bruised by flying sand and the floating fragments. Exposure to the sea-water was making them stiff and sore. The natives sought occasional shelter and rest behind an upturned boat or the masses of drift, and then returned to the battle. Finally, as by common consent, nearly all of those left in the rigging dropped into the sea. It was an easy matter to reach the Nipsic, and a few succeeded in clambering to her deck, but many were too weak and exhausted to hold on long enough to receive assistance from their comrades, and too far off to be reached by the natives. By three o'clock the hull of the Vandalia had almost disappeared. A few men were still in the rigging, lying exhausted on the small platforms or clinging to the ratlines or yards, with the desperation of dying men, expecting every moment to be their last. Their arms and limbs were bruised and swollen and cut by holding on the rough ropes. For twenty-four hours they had been without food, and cold and exposure were doing their work. At this moment the rear of the Nipsics swung to the sea, so that but fifty yards separated the two vessels. A successful effort was made to stretch a line between the two, but before all in the fore-rigging could be rescued, the line parted and could not be replaced. Meanwhile the Trenton, without steam or rudder, lay with her head to the wind, while volumes of water dashed through the hawse-pipes and flooded the engine-room. Had the vessel gone down suddenly, none below could have escaped. They stood at their posts till waist-deep in the water, and the fires were extinct. The berth-deck was flooded. Lieutenant Allen and a portion of the men made repeated efforts to close the hawse-pipes, but the force of the waves tore away every plug. Still they laboured on, far beneath the decks, momentarily expecting the last. The Admiral and his officers stood on the bridge directing the movements of the vessel. When almost on the eastern shoals, a bold coup was suggested by Lieutenant Brown. Every man was ordered into the port rigging, and the compact mass of bodies was used as a sail. The vessel was brought into the centre of the bay again. Then she commenced to drift back toward the Olga, which had been holding up in the gale, more successfully than any of the other vessels. The stars and stripes were flung to the breeze. If she were doomed, she would go down with flying colours. The Olga endeavoured to seem out of the way, but her bow struck the starboard quarter of the flagship, shivering the heavy timbers, carrying away several boats, and throwing the flag to the deck. 
Again it was flung from the masthead. The Olga reached the mudflat on the east side of the harbour. Not a life was lost, and a few weeks later the vessel was hauled off and saved. The struggle of the Trenton was almost ended. It was five o'clock, and daylight was fading as the immense warship bore down upon the Vandalia. When she struck the latter, all would be over. That was a memorable scene. The night was coming on the wings of the storm. Those in the Vandalia's main top still clung, bruised and bleeding. Their eyes were blinded by the salty spray. They looked on the black waters below, knowing they had no strength for further battle with the waves. The final hour was upon them. The great black hull of the Trenton could be seen through the gloom, about to dash upon the stranded vessel and grind her to atoms. Those on the beach ceased their efforts in despair and stood waiting the last act of the tragedy. At this moment there came over the waves a renewal of the wild cheer of the morning. Four hundred and fifty voices were heard above the roar of the storm. Three cheers for the Vandalia! A cheer in the morning had animated the British. Perhaps another cheer now would encourage the despairing seamen of the Vandalia to hold on a little longer. A response went up feeble quavering and uncertain so faint it was scarcely heard by those on shore with death staring them in the face they sent up a cheer for the flagship a cheer more pathetic than any lamentation that was the saddest cry ever heard every heart on shore was melted to pity god help them they murmured darkness hid the scene the last cheer had died away as those on shore listened for the crash, another strange sound came up from the deep. It was a wild burst of music in defiance of the storm. The Trenton's band was playing the Star-Spangled Banner. Never before had the thousand men on sea and shore heard such strains at a time like that. The feelings of the Americans on the beach were indescribable. The power of the music vied with the howling of the storm. Men who during that awful day had exhausted every means of rendering some assistance to their comrades now seemed inspired to greater effort. They dashed at the surf like wild creatures, but they were powerless. There was nothing left for them to do but wait, and if they dared, to hope. The Trenton proved the Vandalia's salvation. She bore lightly against her without a shock, and swung around in the sand broadside to the sunken ship. Those who remained quickly escaped to the Trenton's deck. By ten o'clock the beach was deserted, and all that tempest or man could do had been done. A few watchers patrolled the beach all night in hope of rescuing someone who might not have escaped to the Trenton. But one person was found, a young ensign. One hundred and forty-four persons had perished, Ninety-one were from the German vessels, fifty-one from the Americans, two from a little trading schooner. Not more than one-third of the bodies were recovered. The storm died away. It was a strange scene which the morning sun beheld. The shore was strewn with drifted wreck. The shattered schooners lay about the reef. The streets were crossed with fallen trees, and roofless houses stood amid the groves. A fragment of the Ebba's bow was high upon the beach. Far up the western reef the Adler lay. The Olga stood unharmed upon the eastern shoal. 
Before the consulate, the Nipsic was fast in the sand. Only the bow of the Vandalia's hull could be seen. By her side was the Trenton, grand though in ruin, and above the desolation floated the star-spangled banner, triumphant over the storm. End of chapter 11 Hey everyone, it's me, Amy. Just reminding you, we have t-shirts in the shop. Just go to pgttcm.com, check out all of our cool t-shirts and stickers. Heck, we even got some shelf curtains in there. Keep clean, look cool, have cool stickers to put on stuff. Join us on Patreon and get a free sticker. Or don't. It's up to you.